Hi, welcome to our podcast. To learn more about Liverpool One Church, join us live, give financially and to get involved, head to liverpoolonechurch.com. We believe God wants to do great things in and through your life today. Enjoy this message. So hey, Liverpool One Church, come on, let's say hey. And uh, man, I'm so glad you're here in church today. I'm not gonna lie, like this is my favourite series that we get to do whenever we are planning out the schedule for the year. When we land round about this part, the back end of the year, and we start to talk about doing the About Everyone series, it's my favourite. And it's my favourite because it's the one series in the year that I think speaks most strongly into the real DNA and character of who we are as a church and really the reason why we exist. Now, it's gonna be a little bit different today because um, one of the things that you might not know, but I'm about to give you a little bit of insight into my world, is that since about 2021, um, it's been very commonplace that different churches, different events, different things have invited me out to speak, whether it be on a church um, event or a conference weekend or whatever. And since about 2021, I have been um, around and about, basically, not only in the UK, but also um, in other places in the world as well. And I've been preaching this message that ironically, on a conversation that we just had last week when um, Dave and I were traveling back from Dublin, he was like saying to me, hey, you do know that you've never preached that message in our own church, right? And I was like, no, no, I've preached it loads of times. Like, I've preached that message. And he was like, no, no, honestly, like, you've preached one of the stories before, but you've never preached that message. Like, you've taken it everywhere. And God bless Dave, he's heard this message about 10 times now. But you've taken it everywhere, but you've never spoken this message in your home church. So today, I'm gonna give you a taste of what I've been taking on the road and some of the things that people have been asking me to share about as I give you a message that I've never really pieced and constructed in this way at all for our home church. So we're gonna jump into About Everyone Week 2. Now, I think that we're all the same. There are things that you will like doing in your family. There are things that I like doing in my family. And some of the things might be a little bit different, but on many of the things, it's gonna be similar. One of the things that we love to do as a family is go on holiday. So you know that kind of like once a year trip that you're gonna get some downtime and you're gonna get to hang and hopefully enjoy some good weather and just relax and enjoy each other's company. Well, that's like one of our favorite things. But on our travels on holiday over the years, uh, Emma and I have almost got divorced. And the reason has been quite simple. It's because, do you remember um, not long ago, before the iPhone was able to capture in any good level of quality, any video, we would all tend to use these things called camcorders. Now, if you're like under the age of 20, you're probably looking at me like, what on earth is a camcorder? But a camcorder, for those of you that don't know, was like this portable video device that had this little outstretched arm on the side that had a 6.5 inch viewfinder. And you could like carry it around wherever you would go and you would film your day's activities. And then of a nighttime, when we were on holiday, we would watch watch our day's recordings back on the small side arm of the video camera. And we would watch what we had been recording. 
A few years ago, we were on holiday and we'd gone to Turkey and um, I'd done several days of being the official video operator for the trip and I decided I was going to delegate responsibility to my wife, Emma. So she was having a play with the video camera and it was like, you know, one of those scenarios like, hey, I'm going to go swimming in the sea. You need to film me. And she's like, I got you, babe. I'm going to film you. So like literally I'm out swimming in the sea and she was stood on the boardwalk and she's like videoing away and I would swim back in and I'd be like, hey, did you get me and she's like I got you so that night we went back into our apartment and like everybody's gathering round and I think even Emma's parents were with us at the time and we'd opened up the side arm of the camcorder and we were watching back the day's video camera action that we had captured and um Emma's there and she's like shaking the camera everywhere and she's filming me swimming out in the sea. And I really felt I was looking quite like James Bond and she's like got me like going in and out of the water. And then like there's this moment where she kind of like, as I was starting to get out of the water, she just kind of leaned over to me and she just said this one thing and I've never actually heard her ever say this to me before. And she just said, um, hey, um, she gave me that look, you know, you know guys, that look. She said, uh, she said, your chest is looking good. And I'm thinking like, is it, is it really? Is it, is it, you know? And she looked at me and she was like, oh yeah, yeah. And then literally I took a few more steps out of the water, you know, as I'm just walking up onto the beach and then she kind of, she squeezed my bicep and she was like, your chest is looking really good. And I'm thinking, no, stop it. And then I started to continue to walk out of the sea and I could see and I'm looking at Emma and she's looking at me smiling, squeezing my bicep. Your chest is looking good and I'm looking at her and she's looking at me and I'm saying, the, the, the guy has purple shorts on and she's like squeezing my arm like your chest is looking good. And I'm going, I don't have any purple shorts. <laughs> She'd been filming the wrong guy all day. Now here's my issue, okay? Here's my problem. Whilst that's a funny story for me to tell in church that way around, I'm just going to ask the question, guys, <laughs> could you imagine if you were filming some other girl's chest, <laughs> then complimenting that chest to your wife? I don't think that that was going to go down very well. So I'm just letting you know that there are sometimes things in life happen that just you weren't expecting, and I wasn't expecting that. A couple of years ago, we went on holiday and we were in Egypt. We'd never been there before. And we walked onto this hotel resort and we were meted and greeted by this guy who told us his name was Egyptian John. And as we were like unloading all of our cases and getting everything sorted, he came over and he was like, hey, listen, if there's anything you need on this trip, anything at all, he was like, I'm your guy. All you have to do is just flag me down. My name is Egyptian John. You can find me any time of the day or night, any problems. I'm the guy that's going to fix it for you. I mean, his English was a little bit broken, but we got the gist of exactly what he was trying to convey to us. So we had a couple of days of holiday and everything was absolutely brilliant. It was fantastic. We were having a great time. But then on about the third or fourth day in, the air conditioning unit in the hotel had broken and everything was just getting ridiculously hot. You know, and it's like so hot, it's unbearable. So M says to me, hey, you're going to need to go and find Egyptian John because we need to fix the air conditioner. And I'm like completely aligned with her on this. I'm like, yeah, Egyptian John is the guy. He's definitely going to be able to resolve this problem. 
So I go and find Egyptian John around the pool and I'm trying to explain to him in my best Egyptian English that I can. And I'm saying, John, the problem is the air conditioner is broken. Maybe it's run out. Maybe it's empty. I don't really know how it works, but it's too hot in the room. And he's looking at me going like, air conditioner broken? And I'm saying, yeah, the air conditioner, like it's just way too hot. Maybe it's run out. It's empty, but there's no more cool air coming out of the machine. And he's going, okay, okay, I fix, I fix, I fix. I'm like, great. Can I just leave that with you, John? Can you just sort that out? It's like, Mr. Luke, Mr. Luke, yes, I fixed. No problem, no problem. So at the end of our day, after we'd been around the pool, we went back to the hotel room and we walked in and it was roasting. It was like 36 degrees or something. And I'm like, this is just scorching. So I ran out and I found Egyptian John and he's like, Mr. Luke, Mr. Luke, what's the problem? I said, John, like you had one job. It was the air conditioner that was broken and we needed you to fix it. It's still way too hot in there. And he's looking at me all confused, like I have got two heads. And I'm saying, John, you didn't fix it. Clearly it's broken or it's ran out, it's empty. There's a problem. And he goes, Mr. Luke, Mr. Luke, I fix. I already fix. He then took me by the hand, which was a bit weird, but he took me by the hand. An Englishman and an Egyptian man walking, holding hands through the hotel resort. It was, it was interesting. We went back in and he's like, Mr. Luke, Mr. Luke, let me see, let me see. And he was trying to show me what he'd done. And he's going, I fix, I fix. I'm going, no, see, it's, it's boiling hot in here. And he's then looking at me all confused. He then leads me by the hand and he takes me into the bathroom. Now things are getting really weird. But as proud as punch and with a huge smile on his face, he points towards the sink area of the bathroom and he says to me, Mr. Luke, see, I fix. And this is the image that I had to capture because on my bathroom, he had placed 13 tubs of hair conditioner. And I'm going, no, John, it's the air conditioner. If there is one thing in my life, just one thing that I do not need, John. It's what you've delivered to my hotel room. I was not expecting that. For those of you who are unfamiliar with our story as a church, my wife and I, we are church planters. My wife and I, along with 10 amazing people, we started this church in a living room over 10 years ago now, and I guess in many respects, we feel so incredibly grateful for all that God has done here at Liverpool One Church. And I don't think there's a day that goes by that we don't pray and give God thanks just with appreciative hearts for every single one of you making sure that this thing happens. But the truth is, is the early days of planting a church are quite difficult. And they're difficult because it feels like you're trying to push a melting snowball uphill, like the first five years, honestly. I think it took us nearly five years to grow to just 100 people. And um, it, it, it was laborious. It was hard. The challenge on every level was just immense. And I can remember a few years ago, before we'd actually bought this building, we moved into a venue in Liverpool called the Capstone Theatre. Anybody remember the Capstone Theatre? Few people in the room back then, and we would bounce in and out of that venue. And when we were in the theatre, it felt like it was a really great moment in our life as a church because it felt for the first time ever that people were starting to come. It felt like, man, there were now hundreds of people that would turn up, and at the time, we were just doing one six o'clock service, and the Sunday just felt absolutely amazing. Like the band were getting good and the environment was working and it was just like, man, we're so grateful for all that God had done on that Sunday. 
And then on the Monday, my wife and I, we sat in a consultant's office where he broke the news and said, Emma, you have blood cancer. And I said, well, we can do a surgery, right? We can go in and we can just do an operation. And he explained, he said, no, it doesn't work like that. When you're diagnosed with blood cancer, this is a particularly tricky type. The only thing that we can look to do, and we don't exactly know how this is all going to map out, but what we can look to do is chemotherapy. And if you know anything about chemotherapy, it is brutal. I was not expecting that. We then embarked on a season in our life that was particularly difficult on every level. Because on one level, it felt like our family unit was broken and we were living between hospital wards and the hematology department and test after test and scan after scan. But on the other hand, for the first time ever, it felt like the church was coming to life. So we're now having to balance this tension of feeling like our personal world is broke, but everything that we've been pouring our life into for years, for the first time ever, is starting to flourish. And the truth is, I was not expecting that season. I did not see it coming. It blindsided us. And the truth is, if you're anything like me, then you're going to have seasons in your life where things that are going to happen that are going to blindside you, that you didn't see coming, that you didn't ask for, that you didn't plan for, that you didn't prepare for. And if you're anything like me, what you might find is that it's when those things happen in your life that you didn't see coming take place in your life. It's at that point that you're most likely to struggle massively in life, at home, in your relationships, in your parenting. But it's very likely that whilst you're struggling practically, you're going to struggle the most in your faith life. It's when things that happen to you that you didn't see coming, that you weren't expecting, that almost take your life and aggressively turn your life upside down when you're going to doubt Jesus the most. It's in those seasons when you're struggling that you're going to struggle in your faith the most. Chances are that you're going to find it harder to follow Christ well when it feels to you like your marriage is falling apart and on the verge of collapse. Or the business that you started that you thought was going to be a masterstroke doesn't materialise into anything like you were dreaming. Or even sometimes the tension is on the opposite end of the spectrum. The business that you thought was going to be a masterstroke did become a masterstroke. And now you've got to manage with the tension of how do you grow it? How do you staff it? How do you finance it? How do you make this replicatable? Like all of the tensions and it just feels like your world is starting to struggle because things take place that you just didn't see coming. For some of you, you're going to struggle in your faith the most when it feels to you like as a parent, you've got one of your kids misbehaving, being naughty, in school, not going to school, not wanting to pursue education. And it doesn't matter what you say to him. He's not listening and now all of a sudden your life becomes consumed with the worries about, well, what's this going to lead to for my child, for my son or my daughter? It's when a relationship breaks down that you just didn't see breaking down because when you got married, you walked down the aisle and you said yes forever. And now a few years in, it's like you're strangers. You don't even like each other. And now he's done a thing and she's done a thing and 
All of a sudden, divorce is on the table and you didn't want it to go that way. Things are happening that you didn't see coming, you weren't expecting. And when that happens, it's when you're most likely to struggle in your faith. In fact, it's harder to remain faithful to Jesus when you are struggling by things that have taken you by surprise. But I'm so incredibly grateful for God's Word that is alive and it is life-giving to my soul because in the Scriptures, there are countless occasions of people's life stories that are recounted that actually let us know that we can find common ground with even some of the heroes of our faith. So we're going to take a look by jumping into the New Testament about a particular individual who actually is one of the founding fathers of our entire, not only Christian faith, but especially the very church that we're sat in today is in part in occurrence as a result of this one man. We're going to take a look at the life of Peter. Because in Acts 2 verse 14, it tells us all about a speech that Peter gave one day. This is like after Jesus was arrested, after he'd been crucified, after he'd been raised back to life by God Almighty, Peter is now brought in to give this presentation about what actually has been happening in history. What has God actually been up to? And this is what Peter says. He says, then Peter stood up with the 11. He raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jesus, fellow Jews, And all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. Now, in the interest of time, we're not going to go through the entire text, but let me just fill you in. Peter, at this point in his life, for the first time, is now about to give the clearest and the most concise explanation of exactly what God has been up to on the planet. He explains the reason why his one and only son, Jesus, was a necessary sending of his son to the planet. He explains about the cross, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and he gives a clear gospel presentation about how God loves humanity, about how God wants a real relationship with every single one of us. And then this is what happens as a result of Peter's talk on that day. Let's jump down to verse 41. It says, those who accepted his message were baptised, like we were doing the other week, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. I mean, check that out. As a result of Peter getting up on a platform and addressing the crowds, 3,000 people decide on that day that they're going to become a follower of Jesus. Over 3,000 people decide on that day, we want to be part of building and formulating the local church that we're now a part of. We can kind of say it like this, like this is a landmark moment in the life of Peter. In the same way that we experience landmark moments. You know what it's like to have a landmark moment when you have your first baby. It's like the joy And the happiness intertwined with the sleeplessness is still amazing. It's a landmark moment in your life. It's a landmark moment in your life when you walk down the aisle and you're going to meet your husband who you're going to spend the rest of your life with. It's a landmark moment. It's a landmark moment when you pass your driving test. It's a landmark moment when you receive your first paycheck. It's a landmark moment 
when you've been studying for years and now eventually the paper comes through and you achieved the grade. We all know what it's like to experience the highs of these landmark moments. And this is what Peter was experiencing. It was a landmark moment for Peter because who'd have thought thousands of people would respond to Peter's request to follow Jesus in the way that he was. But it wasn't just a landmark moment for Peter. It was also a landmark moment for the entire early church. Everything that we're now a part of today has really, in essence, come about as a result of the acceptance of these 3,000 people that were responding to one talk that was given by one man to try and say, let me tell you about who God really is. Let me tell you why I sent Jesus. It was because Jesus was the only way that could act as the bridge between where we are and where God is. 3,000 people responded to that one message. And yet, it is so surprising to me that that landmark moment that was awarded to Peter goes to Peter. Like even scripturally, I think that there are some better candidates. It's surprising to me that it was Peter that stood up on that day and that it was Peter that gave the talk. It was Peter that gave the announcement and the clear presentation of the fullness of the gospel. It was Peter In fact, it's astounding to me that it was Peter and not one of the other 11. And it almost makes me go, how did Peter end up being the guy? How did Peter end up being the one that stands up in Acts 2 and almost births the early church? Because it's astonishing to me when you look back at the context of Peter's life. Because the reality of it is there were times and seasons in Peter's life when things that were happening to him and around him were not what he had planned or hoped for. In fact, there were things that were happening to Peter that were not what he was expecting at all. In fact, if there was anybody out of the 12 that should not have been doing that talk, I think it should not have been Peter. Let's have a look at why. Matthew 26. We're jumping into a piece of text where Jesus and his disciples, they're all gathering around a table and they're sharing some food together and they're talking about everything that is about to come. Peter replies, even if I fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. And if you know anything about Peter's life, if we just press pause there for a moment, Peter was unable to keep to his promise. Peter, the one that was saying, I'll never leave you, was the one that did in fact deny Jesus three times before he heard a rooster crowing. In other words, everything that Jesus predicted about Peter turned out to be right. And everything that Peter said that he would not do, he did. Let's check it out in verse 69. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't even know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. 
Then he began to call down curses. He's swearing. He's kicking off. He's not happy. And he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. This is Peter, the one who around the table was saying, Jesus, I'm never going to disown you. I'm going to be brave for you. I'm the one that you can count on. I am going to be the courageous one. And now we find Peter crying like a baby, sat around a campfire with his hood pulled up on his shoulder where he's not acting courageously at all. He is acting cowardly. He's now becoming everything that he said he would never become. The promise that he made not only to Jesus, but also to the other disciples that were all around the table. Nobody else's words are recorded in the way that Peter's words are recorded. Peter was the one that everybody else heard saying, Jesus, I am never going to leave you. And the 12, the 11 were all gathered around him. You said you would be courageous, Peter, but what you actually were was just a coward. And this moment where the text tells us that he wept bitterly was the moment of immeasurable personal failure for Peter. This was the moment that he dropped the ball. This was the moment that something had happened that had really blindsided him, that he didn't want in his life, that he wasn't expecting, that pretty much came to taking him out because he knew he had let him down He'd let Jesus down and he'd let his teammates down. The 11 that were around the table that all heard him make that promise, they all knew of Peter's mistake and Peter's failings. The reality of it is, is this was Peter's most broken moment. You know, just after lockdown, just as the world had started to open up again and schools had started to come back online, our youngest son, Solomon, had gone into school and he'd literally been there not until just after dinner, dinner time. And we get a phone call from the school nurse and the nurse says, hey, listen, you're going to have to come and pick up Sol because I think he's maybe broken his arm or his wrist or his hand. He's been playing football and um, he's really in pain. If you can't come and get him, we're going to have to ambulance him to the hospital. And I was like, okay, I'm going to leave the office. I'm going to be with you in 10 minutes and I'm going to drive there at 30 miles an hour all the way, I promise. So literally, I arrive at the school and like he, he is in pain. So we drive him straight over to the A&E department where they take him into the kids section at the hospital. And um, like he's clearly, he's fallen in an awkward position in a tackle and he's massively hurt his wrist. And, and I feel like as a responsible parent, it was my job to, to kind of to care for him and to let him know that everything was gonna be okay. And, and to also take photographs of him in his pain so I'd be able to show his kids when they were older. So here is one of the photographs. This is Solomon being treated. He, uh, he's in pain right there and they're trying to figure out how how are we going to deal with this wrist? Because what he'd actually done, he'd broken a particular bone in his wrist that they said that they couldn't plaster the whole thing because um, there was a medical reason why they couldn't. So they had to put this strap on splint and make it super tight. And they said to him, you know, look, you're going to have to wear this splint now for somewhere between six to 10 weeks. And he said to the doctor, yeah, but it's okay though, because I can still play the drums, right? Because if you don't know, Solomon was the drummer today in church. He's actually been able to play drums really 
before he could walk. It's what he does every single day. And me and his mum love it. Like all we get to hear is drums in our house. It's, it's awesome, awesome. It's a beautiful sound. And um, so he said to the doctor, you're like, I'll be able to, still able to play my drums right. And the doctor was like, no, no, you don't understand. You, you can't play the drums for at least six weeks, but more likely 10. Because if you go and try and drum or do any kind of physical activity, you knock it, you bang it, you're going to knock, your, knock yourself back really badly. And 10 weeks could even end up becoming double that. We're going to try and use this splint. We try and desperately hard not to plaster it. Like you absolutely cannot drum. So again, being a responsible parent that I am, I got him in the car and we were driving home and I gave him the, I gave him the father chat. You know, like when you, you, you lower the tone of your voice and you're really trying to come across as an authoritative uh, kind of figure. And I just said, Saul, um, you heard what the doctor said. I want you to know that I do not want to hear any noise being made from that drum kit for at least six weeks until we go back for the review. And he's there doing what every teenager kind of does and was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And I was like, no, seriously, mate. It's no drumming, it means no drumming. If you look at what no drumming means in the Hebrew and the Greek, it still means no drumming, okay? There's no drumming. So he's like giving it, you know, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. We were home, honestly, for like, I think two or three days. Sat downstairs, it's a weekend, we had some people in our house. And uh, I'm sat downstairs and he has a drum kit. It's a bit of like his music space. It's actually like in the roof space on the third floor. So, so I'm downstairs and all of a sudden I hear the drums going. And I'm thinking to myself, huh, who, who else could that be? Like, I'm thinking, no one else is up there. I know that there's only Solomon up there and I just get that dad rage. Have you ever had it when like one of your kids is doing something that you have been so specific about telling them not to do, now they're doing it and I can hear the drums. And honestly, I, I, I was like pacing up those stairs, missing every other step. My heart was going, like I could feel the blood racing into my head. I was so angry. I was so cross and I went barging into the attic where he was drumming. Here's the bottom line. This is what happens. I go into the attic and he has filmed the whole thing and he is drumming away and he is doing the whole thing on camera single-handedly. And I went in and I was livid. I was so mad. I was so cross. And he's going to me, Dad, look, I can prove the whole thing. The whole thing was on the camera. I didn't even use my left hand once. And I'm like, no, there's no way that you've just been drumming with one hand. And he's like, I use, only use my right hand. And I, I go over and I'm looking at it and I'm trying to figure it out. And I said, well, go on then, do it again like that. Like, do it again. You know, I'll prove you wrong. So literally he's like, Okay, so then literally just started to drum the whole thing one-handed and I am like going absolutely crazy. And in this moment, there was just this realisation of me going, you know what, look, I love you as a son, but this could be really detrimental if you did end up using your left hand, like this is not good. So I had a conversation with him afterwards and he said this thing to me. I said, Saul, I don't want you to be even going near those drums because chances are when you're drumming, you're likely to want to bring your left hand into play. And then he said to me this, he goes, Dad, here's the thing. It's broken, but I can still play. It might be broken, Dad, but I can still drum. And even if I only use one hand, I can still do it. And I think that there is something in that story that really is the very essence of what Peter also realised too. I wonder what was the difference between Matthew 26 
and Acts 2. How did Peter end up being that guy when actually he was most broken and his life was in a mess with things happening around him that he did not see coming, that he would have felt at the time like everything was ruined. He's let himself down. He's let Jesus down. He's let his team down. And yet he is the same guy that ends up giving this gospel presentation. So what is it that happened that made Peter think that he could be a little bit broken, but he could still play? What was there in Peter's psyche that made him aware that this was my past? This is the context of my life. These are the failings that I've made, but God can still use me. What is it that enabled Peter to make that jump? Well, I think the answer to that question is found in Acts 2 verse 14, where it tells us, then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. You see, what we find in the opening statement of the Acts 2 passage that we read is that there might only have been one person speaking but there were 11 and others standing. I think that what Peter realised was, yes, he was going to be used by God in a powerful and mighty way as a mouthpiece, and that was the call of God on his life. But how was he able to live that out in Acts 2 against the context of his life in Matthew 26? Well, I'll tell you how. Because there were 11 brothers that were stood behind him. And I don't know exactly how this was working, but maybe as Peter opened up his transcript, getting ready to read and present, maybe there was 11 people. Maybe Matthew was stood behind him going, come on, Peter, you've got this. You can do this. Maybe John was stood behind him going, Peter, you're the man. Maybe Paul was stood behind him and going like, Peter, no matter what's gone before you, this is your moment. This is your time. You can do all things that God has called you to do because there were 11 people encouraging him to become all that God would want to have him do. So what was it that filled the gap between Matthew 26 and Acts 2? Well, there was an environment of grace that was given to Peter that just bred within him within him a confidence and a certainty that he was called for this. There was an environment of grace that was created not by the crowd, but by the 11 who knew the best parts of Peter and also the worst parts of Peter. Because that's what grace is. Grace is undeserved favour. Grace is believing the best in someone even when you've seen the worst. Grace is literally choosing to treat people like a friend even when they've been acting like a foe. This is what the 11 provide for Peter. Grace is showing care to people who've only ever treated you cruelly. Grace is accepting you as you are and not according to how I expect you to be. That was the backdrop and the context between what was happening between Matthew 26 and Acts 2. There was this moment of 11 people backing him, supporting him. That's what grace is, unrelenting support. And it makes sense to me now why Peter was able to do it with the backing of the 11. When you consider for a moment what God had instituted way back in the very first book of the Bible in Genesis 1. Because God wanted to create a system for you and I where you would always have the ability to make more and to grow and be fruitful. Let me show you Genesis 27. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. No other thing was made in God's image. 
And then in verse 28, it tells us that God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. You see, this is the reality. When God was going about his business, creating all that we now see and are partaking in today, the mandate on humanity was to be fruitful and to multiply. But the system that God had created in order for seed to be fruitful and to multiply was this thing called intimacy. In other words, you can have a baby when you're intimate with your spouse. You can create more seed in the land when you create intimacy and close proximity. And what Genesis is really all about is this statement for him to say, God wants your life to multiply and be fruitful and to step into all the things that God's got for you. But the way in which he gets you to that place of being able to handle all of that is through this thing called intimacy. Intimacy is where you take off your mask and you let someone else see who you really are, like Peter would have had to have done when he sat around the table promising the earth and delivering absolutely nothing. To the people that loved him the most, they saw the best in him, but they also saw the worst in him. How did he figure that out? Well, he was intimate. He was willing to say, hey, look, guys, this is the real me because God is not attracted He is not attracted to perfection. God is attracted to honesty and authenticity. That's what is magnetic to God. I can remember going back to that season in our life where Emma had been given this diagnosis. We we did our absolute best. But again, we're constantly trying to wrestle the two tensions. It's kind of like home life is broken right now. We're living in the hospital and we're dealing with everything that chemotherapy brings to our door. But at the same time, it's like, man, the church is alive. The church is healthy. The church is growing. We're buying a building. We're raising half a million pound cash and we've got 16 weeks to do it. And we're believing for God big. And it felt like we're dealing with these two tensions that are pulling us left one minute, right the next. And it was just the most incredibly arduous time. And I can remember that I'd built some habits up in my life that were not healthy at all. In fact, they were almost the taking down of me because Emma always said to me from day one, she said, hey, I don't want you kind of like, you know, going Googling everything. I don't want you to Google all the outcomes. I don't want you to try and figure this all out. Well, that's exactly what I did because I remember we went into the hospital on New Year's Eve And we were going in and we were so excited because we'd been praying and we'd been fasting that the doctor was hopefully going to say to us on that day, this is the last time that you're going to ever have to do chemotherapy. We thought that that was going to be it. We thought that was going to be the end. And we sat down and he literally, he apologised to us and he said, hey, listen, you're going to have to do the whole thing again. And we were like, what? You said that if we did, and he's like, we've got to do the whole thing again. We walked out of that room and Emma, she was like in a mess. And I remember I picked her up and almost carried her to the car. And as a husband and as a dad, I'm thinking, I'm going to have to fix this. I'm going to have to figure this out. So I built up one of the most unhelpful habits that I've ever done in my life. And that was she would go to bed and I would stay up every single night. I'd read every doctor's paper that I could find out 
about how chemotherapy works in the body. I try and understand how the blood works in the body. I try and understand about all of the different medicines and ingredients. I would study about what vincristocene, what doxorubicin would all do. What does cyclophosphamide do? How does it respond and react and work with the T cells in your body? I would try and learn all of this because I'm thinking if someone else isn't gonna figure this out, then I'm gonna be the one. There's no way, not on my watch. Am I gonna, like over my dead body, am I gonna leave this down to anybody else? I'm gonna sort this out and this habit went on and went on and went on and I'd stay up till two, three, four o'clock every morning. But the problem that it was creating was everything that I was learning and reading about was building up a picture in my own head that was now making me overwhelmingly fearful to the point where it felt like I'm gonna have a heart attack. And what was almost frustrating was I always knew that Sunday was coming and when Sundays come, everybody apparently likes to hear somebody talk and give a message. And I knew that Sunday was coming and I would sit there on my computer trying to figure stuff out and research and fix it and sort it all out. And I had this one moment where I just had to literally go, God, enough is enough. I need you to get in the middle of everything that I'm fearful of right now and everything that I'm reading on a screen. I need you to help me. I need to know what it's like to be able to breathe again. I wanna know what it's like to experience peace again. And that was my prayer. I have a prayer journal. I write down my stupid thoughts. This was my prayer. Dear Lord, some prayers are way easier to say than others. But honestly, I think you've got this wrong. I'm incredibly grateful, thankful, beyond grateful for all the prayers that you've answered. You've built a church that was once only a dream in our hearts. More people come now, more than ever. People get saved, people get baptised. And I love it. It's not easy. Sundays seem to come pretty fast. The demands only ever increase. Nothing diminishes. And sometimes I feel like I'm just running out of stuff to say. So if you'd have chosen someone way smarter, I think they would handle all this pressure way better. Lord, hear my heart. It is an honour. But there are definitely times that I just think there are better candidates for this job. You sure you got this right? So, for as long as you want me here to be a part of your church, and a part of your plan, I'm open. It's just to feel a little broken. The reason why we do about everyone is because we never want to build a church that says to you, look at me, or look to us. We want to build a church that says, just try and follow the one we're doing our best to follow, because we ain't perfect. We ain't got it all together. 
And I remember after writing that prayer, I reached out to someone because no one knew of what I was dealing with. No one knew of the secret habits that I'd built. And I reached out to Wayne Palmer who sat on the front row and my thing to him was like, yeah, I'm not in a good place. He then, amazing guy, he went and got our entire church board and they sorted out a whole bunch of stuff for me. Different story, but like, I'm incredibly grateful for the men that I have in my life that have supported me and backed me. And I feel like I get to be confident today because I have the equivalent of 11 brothers standing behind me. And I want you to know, if you feel that you're a little broken, not quite perfect enough for God, not quite perfect enough for church, then you can come and be a part of this and will be your 11 brothers. You can come and be a part of this whole thing and will be the 11 stood behind you. Because I'm absolutely convinced that the greatest miracle in life is not the avoidance of pain, it's God's ability to travel with you through it. And I'm absolutely convinced that the way that you become fruitful and you multiply and you get through the seasons that you don't see coming and you don't expect is because God will uniquely position people around you at the right time to help you get through it. But in order for you to experience the fullness of that, you've gotta be willing to take your mask off and go, this is me. That's why truthfully now, I'm not really that embarrassed about sharing this stuff because if it's embarrassing for me, but it's empowering for you, we win together as a church. So I don't really care anymore. And honestly, I didn't share this story maybe in our own church for a long time because I was like, what will they think? Now I don't care because I don't want you to look to me anyway. I want you to look to Jesus. We're all just, we're all just pretty imperfect trying to follow a very perfect God. That's what we're trying to do. So as we close today, I wanna say this. If you're part of a failed marriage, that you're not even proud of and you feel pretty broken, welcome home. If you feel like you're the guy that just has all the anger management problems, you just can't get a grip of it, welcome home. If you're hooked on a habit that's secret on your laptop or with a guy or with a girl or a thing, and you know it's not healthy and you know it's not the best, but the truth is we don't want you to stop coming because you've got something that you would think of yourself that would make them not love me. We wanna be the 11 feel like, man, my history is terrible with experiencing financial ruin, living on the brink all the time, living so close to the wire. Welcome home. We want to be the 11 because this is what can happen when we choose to say, oh no, that's what the gospel story really is all about. It's God so loved the world, not some small select group of people. He loved the world so much that anyone that believes in Him shall not die, but have everlasting life. You can be part of the anyone and you can still play even if you feel at times you're a little bit broken. Why don't we stand to our feet? We're gonna pray real quick. <laughs> Heavenly Father, today we ask in Your Name as we stand in Your presence. Lord, we ask with open hearts today that You would really give us a deep-rooted sense of confidence that You've called us, that You know us, You know of the intricacies of our life, and God, you know of every shortcoming and every failure. And in the same way that Peter was able to go through the failings of his faith that he had experienced and yet come out of the other side and do something great for the goodness of your name's sake and for the goodness of your kingdom, we ask the same thing for us, that we would be wholly available to you, used by you with all of our struggles, our challenges, our difficulties, our complexities, our brokenness. We bring all of that to you, not with the goal of being pursuing perfection, but God, 
God, we're pursuing the one who is perfect. It's you. So we bring all of our brokenness before you and ask that you would use us to create and build an environment that truly is about everyone. With every eye still closed and every head still bowed, the band are gonna sing in a moment. But before we do that, if you've never made a decision to follow Jesus and just being in church today, maybe it's the first time, maybe you've been coming along, just checking things out, but you've just never actually crossed the line. You've never made a really definitive decision to say, I wanna be a follower of Jesus. I want to be a Christian. I want to understand who God is and this compassionate, kind God that you've spoken about. I want Him in my life that I'm gonna say a prayer right now. And if that's the decision that you wanna make, I want to follow Him too, then say this prayer in your heart after me. Heavenly Father, today I'm coming to You and I'm asking for Your forgiveness. I'm sorry for the things that I've done wrong. I'm sorry for the things that have built a barrier between where I am and where You are. So forgive me of my sin because I believe in You. And I believe in Jesus, your one and only Son, whose life was given on a cross for me. So now I give you my life. Now I give you my heart. I'm choosing to become a follower of yours. I'm now a disciple of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We hope that you can take that message and apply it to your life. Also, don't forget to take a moment to subscribe, rate and review this podcast. To get connected or stay more connected to the life of Liverpool One Church and learn how you can join us live, visit liverpoolonechurch.com. Thanks again for joining us and we hope to see you again soon.